He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way it opens our eyes to truth, and it helps us to understand reality as you have created it. And it helps us then to orient ourselves to reality and not to our own fantasies and our own wishes and hopes of things would be according to the way we want them, which is according to our own sin-natured lusts. But, Father, we're thankful that we have your word. It washes us, cleanses us, teaches us, instructs us, enlightens us. It gives us great wisdom and skill for living. And, Father, this comes not only on the basis of what you have provided, but helping us to understand the future, that all of this is pointed to a destiny that we each have in Christ and that we have been appointed to, that we might glorify you and rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And, Father, help us as we begin to uh, develop this and Come to understand how all of this is explained in your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and as we come to the 14th verse, we come to a word that has been used, at least in different forms, already in this uh, great uh, section of blessing and Father, and uh, as we look at this, it helps us to understand uh, that the destiny that God has for us in this word inheritance, that we are heirs of God, as Paul says in Romans 8, and joint heirs of Christ. What does that mean to be an heir of God and a joint heir of Christ? We have passages, as we have here in Ephesians, that talk about the fact that that uh, we have been given an inheritance, uh, we have obtained, or he has made us an inheritance, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, and we are his possession. But then we learn as we get down to verse 14 that we've been given the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So we are going to now look at what this involves. And I want to contextualize this again for you because as we go through, as, as we have gone through this opening part of Ephesians, 
it is so easy to read it according to certain Calvinistic presuppositions and on the basis of how some of the key words have been used that when, as we have studied, we look at these words, we see that there are several other nuances to these words that are overlooked. And when we take them in that way, there is a connection. There's a significant connection going through here in terms of the fact that God has appointed us to a destiny, that that destiny is related to the fact that he has made us his possession. That's the idea of inheritance, that there is a seal, and the sealing by the Spirit, as we saw last time, is also a sign of our ownership by God, and that we have also been given a possession, this idea of property and possession related to God's plan and purposes for those in Christ just runs through this whole section. So what we have seen is that the church-age believer, in verse 11, is made a new possession of God's in Christ. He owns us. We have been bought with a price, and we are not our own. And so that was correctly translated, and as I pointed out, I am not the only one who translated it this way, that there are a number of different translations that have handled the grammar in this particular way. Uh, the NET, the ASV, uh, Gordon Olson's uh, Resurrection New Testament, all have translated, but that's not the limit of it. I haven't gone through every single one. But it, tra- it faithfully translates the verb as a true passive and not going through some circumlocution to try to make it into uh, a middle voice or an active voice. It should be understood as this. In addition, it was through union with him. Union with Christ is the means to the end. The end is that we are made his possession Translating it that way, as we'll see, fits the context better. We were made his possession by his laying claim to us. That's the idea in proorizo, the word normally translated predestination, which is not its meaning at all. Uh, his laying claim to us according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I think the great takeaway here is God has a purpose for our life, and as long as we're still alive, there's a purpose for us. Even if we are, even if we have some fatal disease, even if we are confined to a bed, even if we can do very, very little, what we can do is what we should do until the Lord calls us home, until that nanosecond occurs, we have a mission to serve the Lord with whatever we have. It may be simply in prayer. It may also be uh, in terms of witnessing to those who take care of us when we reach the end of our life and we are under care. Wherever we end up, whether we are in a hospital, whether we are in a retirement home, whatever it is, we are there and have people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same is true if we're younger and healthy. We are, we work at a place where we should be developing relationships and when we have opportunities to give them the gospel, we can do that. 
The workplace is not necessarily the time and the place to be giving the gospel to other people, for we are working for somebody. But as we develop relationships there, then these opportunities will manifest and we can take advantage of them. We are God's possession for a purpose. There's an analogy here that is important, and it runs through these last two verses in Ephesians in in this um, blessing section in verses 13 and 14, and it is a comparison between this new body of believers, the church, and the uh, people of God in the Old Testament. There was a corporate selection of that body, and they became a possession, an inheritance as well. As Deuteronomy 4.20 says, they were called to be, they were brought out of Egypt to be his people, a, an inheritance or as a possession. Deuteronomy 14.2 and 9 also talk about this. And the key word I want to point out that we'll see here, the Lord's portion, that's talking about the people. That term is an inheritance term. It refer, usually refers in legal documents to the share of an inheritance. It talks about a possession. The Greek word, the word that the rabbis chose to translate it into is meris, which relates to this idea of the share or portion designated in a will as, as the inheritance. But the Hebrew word is the word down here, nahala. Now we'll see that. So hold on to that. Just kind of file it away in the back of your mind because this is a word that shows up again and again and again, and especially in context related to inheritance. And it connects the dots. New Testament teaching on inheritance is grounded upon this understanding in the Old Testament. Second thing we saw last time in 114 is that we're marked as a new possession. That's the sealing ministry of God the Holy Spirit. That idea of sfragizo means to mark something as a possession. And in Ephesians 114, we read who, referring to God the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until... And that is a phrase in the Greek that indicates its purpose. It's focusing on the destiny. It's the preposition ace, which indicates a long-term purpose. For the purpose, the ultimate goal, reaching the ultimate goal of the redemption of the purchase price. See, we have been redeemed in one sense at the cross where the price was paid But in another sense, that redemption is not fully realized until we are in our resurrection bodies face-to-face with the Lord with our fully realized phase three salvation. Now, all of this, as I pointed out last time, reinforces the idea of a corporate election, Not that this isn't talking about individual selection for who will go to heaven and who will not go to heaven. It is talking about the destiny God has chosen for each believer in Christ, what he has appointed us or ordained us to as members of the body of Christ, and that it is in him that we are made a possession. 
The second thing that we saw is that this idea of being made his possession in verse uh, verse 11 connects very nicely with the idea of being sealed by the Spirit in verse 13. It's marking a possession. It is being made a possession. He is the one who owns us. And third, I pointed out that this reinforces the teaching of eternal security, that all of these things that God does for us at the instant of salvation are irreversible. The idea that somehow we can commit a sin that Jesus forgot about on the cross or that God didn't know about that wasn't paid for on the cross, that somehow it got missed, it was too great for the grace of God, puts the ultimate basis for salvation on us and not on God. Somehow we have to keep ourselves free from at least some sin, otherwise we really aren't truly saved. We are saved because we are in Christ, because he paid for every sin. The God's omniscience didn't forget one. Jesus didn't avoid one. They were all paid for on the cross. There is no such thing as an unforgivable sin in terms of God's plan for salvation. Now, that brings always brings up uh, a question. Isn't there an unforgivable sin? E- for eternal salvation, there is no unforgivable sin. The mention of a sin that would not be forgiven by Jesus in the challenge by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 had to do with a temporal sin and temporal consequences, that because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they would face the judgment that would come in A.D. 70. That was not going to be reversed. It does not have to do with their eternal salvation. It had to do with what would happen to the nation because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So at the cross... What happens when we are saved is that we are instantly identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is indicated by the phrase, baptism by means of the Spirit. It is described in Romans 6, 3 through 6, that we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we are now free from the power, but not the presence of the sin nature, and we are in Christ. Along with that, at the same time, we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, which has never happened before in human history. The first time was on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, where God the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of every believer, and that is never lost. The other thing that happens by the Spirit is what we've studied in this passage. We are sealed by the Spirit. We are marked as God's own possession. So, in retranslating, correcting some of the errors here and there that have shown up, and I pointed out how different parts of the way I translated this can be found in different translations, in whom that is a reference back to Jesus, in him... You also. Now, in him is not positional. Some uh, translations I pointed out last time says, when you heard the word of truth, you believed in him. Now, that's not it, it, the grammar here. It's always talking about position here. In whom, Paul starts this thought, in him you also, and then he stops and he brings in another idea. When you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, in him, that is in whom, in him, when you believed, you were sealed. 
He's, he, he's, there's an intensification here as he starts the sentence, add something to it when you heard the word of truth, and then comes back to that main thought in whom, when you believed, you were sealed. The main idea is in whom you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise is going to be a key word for us because promise is related to grace. We saw in our reading earlier in Galatians chapter 3 that Paul brings out an aspect of promise in relation to Abraham that it emphasizes grace and not law. We see the same thing as we'll develop this in the 14th verse. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise relates to grace. It's God's unmerited favor that he has given us the Holy Spirit. It is not something we earn or deserve. And about the Holy Spirit, then we come to verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, if we just look at that, even in the English, anyone ought to be able to gather from that the sense that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. That means that that he guarantees that we will receive that inheritance. We can't lose it. It's ours eternally. That's why I ended up last time talking about just giving a summary of eternal security, that we do not lose our salvation because we commit some sin. There's always folks who come along with their terrible two, fearsome five, nasty nine, whatever it might be, that if you... Uh, commit usually some sexual sin, uh, adultery or homosexuality or lesbianism that somehow that cancels out your salvation. So in this day and time, that's the terrible sin. You go back 150 years ago, it was slavery or it was drunkenness. Uh, there are always legalists who try to take away from the grace of God, but Jesus died for every sin. Christians, it's become sort of a cliche now, but Christians hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Uh, God loves the sinner. He hates the sin. So too often we see today in the way the uh, LGBTQ community pushes the country and forces the country and bullies the country into, uh, into recognizing and legitimizing their behavior for the biblically-based, grace-oriented Christian, it's not their behavior of, that is the homosexual behavior that's really the problem. The problem is their attempt to make me say that it's okay. That's what I object to. I, it's not my business what they do in the bedroom. It's none of our business because I have my sins and I need to deal with them and they need to deal with their sins and that's between them and the Lord and my sins are between me and the Lord. We have to deal with them in grace just as we hope they will deal with us in grace in terms of whatever our sins are because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin. So that sin in one sense is not really the issue. But it, it does become an issue if you have somebody, for example, who wants to legitimize arrogance. And it's not wrong for me to be arrogant, and I'm going to be an arrogant bully and bully everybody else, and that's okay because uh, arrogance is really not a sin. 
Well, we all know that's fallacious. We know that other sins are sins, and homosexuality is just one of those sins. It doesn't cancel out your salvation. Neither does uh, adultery, neither does arrogance, neither does lying, neither does being uh, corrupt in other areas of life. These things don't cancel out our salvation. We have to treat with all people with grace and kindness even when they are opposed to us. That That is part of our eternal security. Christ died for those sins. So there's a guarantee of our inheritance because our sins, your sins, my sins, are just as bad as anybody else's sins in terms of separating us from God. But God loved us in such a way that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is that belief in him that is that is critical. So the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee of our inheritance. And the two key words I've underlined here help us to focus on this. The word guarantee is arabone, and it refers to a down payment on something that is fully realized in the future. So that if you look at a uh, at a present you want to buy somebody, maybe you don't have all the money right now, but you want to get them this for them at Christmas, you go down and you place a down payment on it now, and then you may pay in installments. That doesn't fit our analogy. But then at the end, there will be a final payment, and you'll realize it. That's part of this analogy. It's a pledge that it will be realized, and we recognize a redemption at one level, In Christ, we have been redeemed. We have the forgiveness of sins, but we're not fully there. That's phase one. Phase two occurs when it is fully realized, when we are absent from the body and we are face-to-face with the Lord. It is a down payment. We receive the Holy Spirit now, but what we will receive in the future is guaranteed by that down payment, and that is the word Kleronomia inheritance. It is the down payment of what we will receive in the future. Until, and let's look at two, three other passages where this word guarantee is used. Who, you know, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now that uses the same two concepts, the idea of being sealed or marked as a possession and then being given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of that which will come eventually. It will come. We can't lose it. Second Corinthians 5.5 5 also relates this to the giving of the Spirit. Now, he who has prayed, uh, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That is our guarantee of our future inheritance and salvation. In Ephesians 1.14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? Those are the only three times in the New Testament that the word arbon is used. Now, in the next phrase, it is until or towards the purpose of the redemption, the apolutrosis. There are several different words used in the Greek for redemption. They all relate to the payment of a price, but this is focusing on the future full realization of our redemption at phase three, 
And then it states of the purchased possession, peripoiesis, and that simply means a possession. That is related to the word inheritance, kleronomia. Kleronomia refers to not just an inheritance but a possession. So think of inheritance not in terms of somebody dying and you receive something in the will, but of as property, as possession. This is what we've seen going back to verse 11, that uh, we have been made God's possession, and now we see here that we have a guarantee of our uh, uh, possession, our inheritance as a guarantee of our property until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we see through the language that is used throughout these verses, uh, from verse 3 down through verse 14, that God has a plan and a purpose, and he has made us his own, and because we are in Christ as the mark of that, then we have a particular purpose and destiny as members of the body of Christ. So what I want to do, because I have not taught on this in some time, is to go through what the Bible teaches about inheritance, because this is often confused. We have passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, have passages that list a series of sins, including homosexuality and adultery and uh, being divisive and murder and covetous all, and a list, host of other sins, carousing, all of these things, ending with the statement that he who does these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that seems to fly in the face of what I've taught about eternal security. That seems to suggest that those who engage in certain sins, and it's not just the sexual sins, I mean, it it's involves arrogance, it involves uh, mental attitude sins and sins of the tongue, man, a range of sins, and they're not exhaustive lists, that if you commit these sins, you can't inherit the kingdom. So we have to understand what inherit the kingdom means. It does not mean getting into heaven. I'll tell you that to start with. It doesn't mean uh, having eternal life. It has to do with p- full possession of the kingdom in terms of realizing that in our life. But to understand the dimensions of what I just said, we have to back up and look through the scriptures to understand this inheritance concept. So we'll look at this two or three different ways this week and next week. First of all, in Ephesians, we have the following forms of the word. The root is really that K-L-E root. And you have the verb, klerao, you have kleronomia uh, as a noun, you have some other forms of it, but the root idea here always goes to some kind, something in relation to uh, possession or something that we've been appointed to. The verb is used in Ephesians 1.11, and it has that idea of being appointed, and kleronomia has the idea of inheritance, possession, or property, as in Ephesians 1.14, 1.18, and again, we will see it in Ephesians 5.5. That's just the root form, sort of the semantic range 
from which these different words mean. They don't all mean the same thing, but they, they're related to each other. So we have to look at usage to understand its, its meaning in any particular passage. Second thing we see is that inherit has the core semantic meaning of possession, property, or ownership. When we see inheritance, don't our, our heir of God, don't think in terms of what we think of in our culture as a death occurs and now you're the heir, you receive something, but it has the idea of possession, property, ownership. And we see that whether we're talking about Old Testament passages or New Testament passages. But one that is really clear in the way it is used in, in a synonymous sense is in Acts chapter 7, verse 5. Now, the speaker here is Stephen. Stephen has been, uh, uh, is challenging the Pharisees, and he gives this very pointed and convicting sermon in Acts chapter 7, rehearsing the failure of the spiritual leaders of Israel to lead according to truth. And in and as he does so, he goes back and he talks about Abraham and Moses and other events in the history of Israel. And in verse 5 he says, And God gave him, talking about Abraham, uh, no inheritance in it. The previous verse is talking about the land that God had promised. But God gave him no inheritance in it. So right there, you're, you, if you think in terms of the English meaning, You'd have, you'd be struggling to find out, well, well, who died or what's going on here. You know, the, the idea of a death and receiving something as a result of a death is not part of the, the imagery. God gave him no inheritance in it. This is the word kleronomia, the same word we have in our passage, and it means possession here. God gave, uh, we could even translate property. God gave him, that is Abraham, no property in it. Now, he had promised the land to Abraham, but Abraham never owned any property there until the death of his wife, Sarah, and then he purchased the cave of Machpelah in Hebron, and that is where uh, Sarah was buried. That's the only piece of real estate he purchased. God promised the land, but it had not yet been given to them. So God gave him no property in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised, that is, God promised to give it to him for a possession. This is the second word over here, kataskesis, which just literally means a possession. So these words, uh, kleronomia and kataskesis, are synonyms. And he gave it to his descendants after him. So let's go back and do a quick review of the Abrahamic covenant. It's summarized in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In there, we see that God promised to Abraham a specific piece of real estate, the land. He gave him a promise that through his descendants, the world would be blessed, a promise of a seed, and that he would bless the whole world. So those are the three elements, and as we know in all of our studies, that each element was further expanded in a subsequent covenant. The land covenant in Deuteronomy 29, 
the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which we've been studying on Tuesday nights, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Now here's Jeremiah, I mean Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees at this point down in the southern part of what is today Iraq. Uh, Get out of your country, leave your family from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, Abraham was partially obedient. He took his father with him and his nephew Lot with him. Uh, He didn't leave everything or everybody, but he took, uh, he's partially obedient. And God makes a promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you shall be, this is a command, it's not take, make, just making a statement that, well, in the future you'll be a blessing. He's saying, you, going, you be a blessing. You be a blessing. And then he says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, literally, and I will curse him who curses you. Literally, I will uh, treat harshly or judge harshly those who treat you with disrespect. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is in the format of what the ancient world called a royal grant treaty. There are two basic covenants or treaties. One is a Susan Vassal treaty. The other is a royal grant treaty. Susan Vassal is like the Mosaic law. But a royal grant is something that a, a master would give a servant who's already demonstrated his faithfulness and loyalty, and it's something that's freely given. It, it's analogous to just, just pure grace. God just said, just selected Abraham, not on the basis of anything that he had done per se, but just as Abraham had been loyal to God, God rewarded him with this covenant. Okay, so he hasn't earned it, but from his obedience, God freely gives him of this particular covenant for a purpose. And part of it is includes the idea of this land, the promise of a nation, the promise of blessing, and the promise of land, which comes up in a few verses in Genesis 12, 6, and 7. And 12, 6 gives us the context as Abram is now traveling into this land that God has promised him, he, he's moving from north to south, and he passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Uh, Shechem is now incorporated within the city of Nablus, and he goes to Shechem and to the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites, were, we're told, were then in the land. So he doesn't own it. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. It's a free gift. It's grace, and it's a promise. It is not based on Abraham doing anything or performing in a certain way. It is a just a gracious promise. Now, the covenant itself really gets developed more in Galatians uh, chapter 15. You may want to turn with me in your Bibles. We'll be looking at Galatians, I mean Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17. These are your two key passages for understanding uh, the covenant. God appeared to Abram in Genesis chapter 15, 
verse 1, in a vision and said, Don't be afraid, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God portrays himself. He's our reward, the rich blessing of God. But Abram is still sort of hung up on this idea that I'm going to have a seed, but at this point I'm childless and I'm too old. My wife's childless. She's too old. Maybe we'll, we'll work this out through my servant. I'll adopt Eliezer, and he can be the one. So he's going to help God fulfill the promise. We never help God in fulfilling his promise of salvation. He does it all by himself. God fulfills his promises his way. So in verse 2, Abraham said, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Well, I, in other words, what he's saying is, I don't have a physical descendant. I've got Eliezer. He's born in my house as a servant. Let's make him the heir. I'll help you out, Lord. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able, if you are able to number them. And God said to him, So shall your descendants be. This is the promise. God is saying, you may be well past the age of having children. Sarah may be past the age of having children, but this is how many you're going to have. Look at the stars. You can't count them. That's how many you're going to have. And then we have verse 6. Now, a lot of people in English read that as the fact that Abraham is believing that promise. What happens is you have a series of verbs that are structured one way, imperfects, and then verse 6 shifts to a perfect. That means it's not in the flow of the previous verbs. It's a parenthetical statement. And it is a reminder to the reader that Abraham had already at some indeterminate time in the past believed in the Lord and he imputed it or counted it to him as righteousness. It's referencing back to the fact that Abraham was saved at some time in the past, before Genesis 12 and before Genesis 15, obviously. And God is giving this as a free gift, as grace, to someone who's already a believer, already justified. And then in verse 7, God goes on to say, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. The idea there is to possess it, to own it. It's your property. It will be your property. And Abraham said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Give me a little guarantee here. Verse 9, so God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And they go through this, this covenant ceremony with these sacrifices. And what Abram does is he kills these animals, splits them in two. And the way that a covenant cutting ceremony would take place is when these animals were laid out, if two humans were making a covenant, then they would walk together between the two halves of these sacrifices, indicating that they are both bound to the covenant uh, by walking together through these sacrifices. But what God does is different. When the sun goes down in verse 12, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, 
And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And God says to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land. So the first thing he warns him is they're going to be strangers in a land, a foreign land. They'll be out of here for 400 years, which is what happened during their enslavement in Egypt. And he says, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. I'm going to judge the Egyptians, which, of course, he did. So that prophecy came true. And then he says in the fourth generation, down verse 16, they will return here for, in other words, he's giving a time to the Canaanites and the Amorites uh, to turn to him. He's being very patient with them. And then we're told in verse 17, when the sun came down and it was dark, that, behold, there was appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. That symbolizes God. Abram's fast asleep. God is the only one who is bound by this covenant. That's what makes it an unconditional covenant. God alone is bound by it. There is nothing that Abram can do to violate the covenant because he didn't enter into it as a covenant maker. It is freely given to him, which is the pattern of a royal grant. Then verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, here we have it on the screen, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. So that goes from a wadi down in the Sinai, the uh, wadi el-Sharish, to the river Euphrates which is over in Iraq. All of that land God gave to them. They've never possessed all that land. God gave it to them as an eternal possession, but they do not have never fully possessed it, but it is their inheritance. They will one day. This promise is repeated in Genesis 17, 7, and 8, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. This is a different word. This is the Hebrew word achuzah, which means a just a possession. It's just a synonym for nechalah. Uh, after I give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan is an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. So we see that the main idea of inheritance is that of possession. It, throughout various passages in both Old Testament and New Testament, the word inherit is, is then uh, juxtaposed to a synonym possession uh, throughout the text. So the third thing we see is that inheritance in relation to Abraham can be related to the land promise or the seed promise, but it's always related to promise, which reflects grace. It's not related to law. That's the point that Paul develops in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, for if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer a promise. Because it is of the law, it's something you earn. If it's promised, it's a free gift. But God gave it, whenever you see the word God with the verb gave, it always speaks of grace. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. 
This is also what Paul says later on in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, after talking about Abram as the pattern for justification, he says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abram or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, that which is the result of grace. Verse 14, for those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void in the promise made of no effect. So this inheritance, this possession, is related to God's grace promise. And so it is not something that we earn, but is something that is freely given. But there's a second kind of inheritance. Inheritance is also related to rewards for what is earned for service, whereas salvation is a free gift. Now, we'll get to the passage in Romans 8 that talks about the two categories of inheritance, being an heir of God, number one, and number two, being a joint heir of Christ if we suffer with him. But we're building to that. So inheritance is also related to rewards for what is earned for service, whereas salvation is a free gift. And this is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24. It starts with the causal participle, because you know something. So many times Paul uses that causal thing. He says, he's telling them, so he said, remember, this is, I say this because you already know this. I've taught this to you. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now here, this is something that's a little different. It's a reward. And salvation is free, but a reward is earned. A reward is given for faithful service. And then in the English translation, it says something about for, uh, for you serve the Lord. But it's, that's a bad translation. There's no for there. There's not a participle there. There's an imperative verb there. It's a full stop period after the inheritance. You will receive the reward of the inheritance, period. And then a command. Serve the Lord. Why do you serve the Lord? Because serving the Lord relates to the reward, reward of the inheritance. Salvation is free, but rewards are earned. Now, we're going to come back next time and develop this a lot more, working through Old Testament passages on inheritance and then talking about Christ as the heir of God and then talking about the believer's two categories of inheritance for the believer. That will open up the meaning and the significance of, of Ephesians 1.14 for us, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin this remarkable study, opening our eyes to this rich arena of teaching in your word related to uh, inheritance related to ownership, possession, related to grace, related to our spiritual life and and earning rewards, and all of the many different aspects of this teaching. Help us to understand this. But above all, we pray that if there's anyone listening or here that has never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, they're just not sure that if they were to die today that they would go to heaven. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to them what we've taught this this morning, that salvation is a free gift. Jesus Christ paid the price, that sin is not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. It's believing in him. 
as John 3:18 says, if we have not believed in him, then we are still condemned. And Father, we pray that we might understand that, that those who have not been not saved will understand that, and that the only solution is faith in Christ, trusting in him, believing that he died on the cross for our sins, and that if we trust in him, that we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would make these things very clear to us. Help us as we think through this vital doctrine in Scripture that you might be glorified in the way it transforms our lives. In Christ's name, amen.